Well, if you're with us for the first time today, if you're a guest, we welcome you. We're glad you've worshipped, decided to worship with us here today. We are excited uh, by your presence. I hope you will stop by the welcome desk and introduce yourself to us. We'd be excited to know your story, to learn a little bit about who you are, and also to give you a gift that has a mug as our way of saying you're invited to the table, you're invited to the conversation, to the community, and inside that mug you'll find information that tells you a little bit about who we are. We do not give it to Pittsburgh Pirate fans. Sorry, Milt. (laughs) I just caught Milt's eyes as I walked around here. Also, if you've been uh, absent for a few of our episodes of uh, our current series or you want to relive another series that we've done, we have about two years of sermons online and we are going to be putting up the videos this week as well. So we have a podcast and videocast archive online. You can check that out at www.eastpetemc.org. Lastly, I invite you to uh, continue to find ways to Join conversation and community and share life together through our Facebook page throughout the week. This is the number one way that people actually find out about our church and find about who we are and come to visit us is actually through Facebook. So when you're at church, I encourage you to check in. I encourage you to like our page. I encourage you to share some of the statuses and the events to your page uh, so people can continue to find out about who we are as a church. This morning, as Larry said, it is Mother's Day. And so happy Mother's Day. To the moms who are present with us today, may you be blessed and full of peace. The roots of the modern American Mother's Day actually date back to the 19th century, just a few years before the Civil War. Anne Reeves Jarvis of West Virginia helped start Mother's Day work clubs to teach local women how to properly care for their children. These clubs later became a unifying voice in the region of the country that was divided by the Civil War. They worked at reconciliation. The moms would gather with their children and try to get the Union and the Confederates to sit down at the same table together and work together for peace so that they could accomplish things. Another precursor to our modern Mother's Day came from the peace worker Julia Ward Howe. In 1870, Howe wrote the Mother's Day Proclamation, a call to action that asked mothers to unite together in promoting world peace. She would go on in 1873 to form Mother's Day by calling it Mother's Peace Day. So this morning, remember that moms are often the ones that keep the peace in the house. That moms are the ones that work for reconciliation in the house. And in many ways, they mirror the heart of God as they do that. Actress Sally Fields a few years ago on a Mother's Day said, "If If mothers ruled the world, there would be no wars. So we thank you, moms, for all you do in our worlds, uh, in our families, the way you bring peace. And we just give you a blessing and hope that today is a day of peace for you as well. We're going to be continuing our series, The Ethos of the Kingdom. Pastor Bob started this series a few weeks ago, and we've been looking at what is often called the Beatitudes. It's uh, a portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we are learning to see what the culture of the kingdom is. How does he want us to live? We continue this series this morning on learning the DNA of the kingdom. The Beatitudes are found in Matthew 5, and they're really a sermon message that Jesus gave so that we know, know how we should live. The DNA of the kingdom is one contrary to what we believe naturally. If you haven't noticed, there's chess pieces that are upside down on this image. 
See, in the game of chess, you are always trying to advance. You're always trying to better yourself and keep as many of your pieces on the table as you can by eliminating and capturing the most of someone else's pieces. You want to eventually take away everything they have, their pawns, their religious figures, their political figures, and eventually even their wife, so that you can get that king in checkmate. You're always advancing and trying to better yourself by weakening somebody else. The game of chess is how the world thinks. It's how we advance in life. We always have to be on the advance, on the progressive, on the move, on the checkmate of everything else in life. We have to have more of our pieces on the table than anyone else. When Jesus began to talk about the Beatitudes and the way the kingdom is and the ethos of the kingdom, he turned all of that upside down. In fact, in some ways what he said is the people with the less chess pieces on the table are better than those that have at all. That's why in this logo you see that the chess pieces are upside down. That is the DNA of the kingdom of God. It's the rhythm of the kingdom that he wants us to discover. This morning we entitled our series sermon, uh, The Kingdom is for the Broken. It's going to be looking at Matthew 5, 5, and the idea that Jesus wants to form a kingdom in the here and the now, and in the kingdom yet to come, that is all around the broken. The kingdom is for the broken. You know, sometimes we look at the Beatitudes and we think Jesus is addressing eight different classes of people. He's not. He's addressing and teaching the traits of a kingdom citizen. You know, we, we look at it in our times of mourning and we say, look, those who are mourning will be blessed. Those who show mercy will be blessed. And we, we kind of categorize these into eight classes of people. What Jesus is saying is these traits, these, these beatitudes are found in those who live by my rules of the kingdom. These are the the traits, the DNA structures of those who are willing and who will experience me. We're going to start this morning in the end of Matthew 4, and we're going to read the kind of precursor part to the Beatitudes, and we're going to read the first three Beatitudes till we get to where we are today. And if you want to join with me, it's going to be on the screen. You can also open up to Matthew 4 in your Bibles. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, oh, there should have been a screen before that, actually, sorry. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are mourned, for they will be comforted. And then this morning we look at the next piece. The idea that blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. That is Matthew 5, 5. Jesus isn't saying that after the world goes to hell in a handbasket, that the meek get to rule it. What he is speaking about is those who will experience his kingdom and his earth in the here and now. 
the meek. He's also referencing um, an earlier passage. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But Jesus is speaking about his kingdom or the earth as something to be inherited. In the same way he did to the promised land for the Jews. What he is saying is those who are meek, they are the ones that will prosper and know the true identity and the true freedom in the world that is current and the world that is to come. Jesus is also referencing Psalms 37, 11. And it says, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. The meek, those with the fewest pieces on the chessboard are going to be the ones that truly experience the truest identity of who God is. They will be the ones that see the face of God. They will be the ones that experience the kingdom, both in this world and the one to come. If you have your bulletins with you, you can open it up. There's some underscored lines. You can follow along with the notes and fill them in as you want. You can reflect on them later. The answers will be on the screen as we work through. See, what we see here is Jesus has just started his ministry. Jesus just got started. He just got baptized uh, by John the Baptist. He just spent 40 days arguing with the devil in the desert and facing his, his life and his ministry. And now he comes on the scene and he starts to heal people right off the bat. He just starts to really show the Father's love by fixing brokenness, by fixing what ailed people. See, the wonders that Jesus performed was a demonstration of God's kingdom and abundant love, and it was causing quite a stir. That's the first thing he did when he came out of the desert. It doesn't say that he stopped and got a bite to eat. It says he went right into healing the sick, and he was traveling around loving on people with the Father's love. The wonders that Jesus performed was a demonstration of God's kingdom, and abundant love had caused quite a stir. He didn't preach first. He loved on the people first. The next thing we see from this passage is the stirring interest came to a head as they followed Jesus and his fumbling disciples up a mountainside. The crowds were starting to form quickly. They had never seen anything like this. Pharisees were quick to set rules and to tell you how you should be. And they were constantly raising the bar of where you need to be. And people were so busy trying to advance themselves, they had never experienced a demonstration of the Father's love. And that was contagious. They were following Jesus because they needed more. So Jesus' disciples, who were just called not too much longer, are still fumbling around trying to figure out who Jesus is, what he's doing. They follow him up a mountainside, and the crowds come along with him. It was on that mountainside that Jesus delivered his first and longest recorded message of the kingdom of God. The New King James Version says it this way. When Jesus went up the mountainside, he opened his mouth. He didn't shut it for a while either because he talked about the Beatitudes and he told about three parables and some teaching on the salt of the earth. This is Jesus' first and longest recorded message of the kingdom of God. It's the one that teaches us the most about the world in which we live and the kingdom that is breaking through and the kingdom that is yet to come. You see, Jesus first demonstrated the kingdom. And then he taught about it. He invited people to learn what it means. And he challenged them to live by what it means to be part of the kingdom. 
He was teaching them the ethos of the kingdom. Jesus used this message to teach them the ethos of the kingdom. Ethos is, is a word meaning the culture or the, or the, the rhythms of a community or a, a place. And the kingdom had different culture. It had a different ethos than what people were used to. They knew the culture and the ethos of the Pharisees. They knew what uh, their culture of their oppressor Rome was. They knew the ethos and what they had to do there. But all of a sudden, Jesus started talking and demonstrating in a way that turned all of that on its head. Jesus used this message to now tell them the most important thing, what the kingdom was all about. Jesus was all about the kingdom. See, Jesus taught that the kingdom and its ethos were both applicable in the here and the now and the yet to come. The kingdom is an interesting place. Some people read the Beatitudes and they read Jesus is talking about the kingdom and they only view it as a faraway place. Then other people view it as this thing that we can experience heaven on earth. I think what Jesus is saying here and who continues to say through the Sermon on the Mount and through his teaching to the disciples is that the kingdom is both here and now and yet to come. Jesus' purpose for coming was to bring about the kingdom. He said, I am about my Father's kingdom. I am about my Father's work. He even told them, some of you will not die before these things happen. The kingdom was coming. It broke through. And on Pentecost, we see it break through in mighty, powerful ways. He taught his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer that taught them how to align themselves to the ways of the kingdom. Our Father who art in heaven, the kingdom yet to come, come here now. He taught us to pray in a way that taught us to live out the kingdom now. We are the instruments of the kingdom. We are part of the breakthrough of the kingdom. A kingdom that is, yes, both to come and is here now. We can experience and inherit a kingdom in one way now and we'll experience it fully yet to come. In his message, we learn that it's the meek that will receive and experience the kingdom. It's the meek that will experience the kingdom Meek is a funny word, and it's been used um, in different translations in different ways. Some people struggle to, to translate it. In fact, French New Testaments use the word debonair instead of meek. This word at least cancels out the false sadness we have linked to meek. And it hints at someone who is gladdened and overcome by God's greatness, and that they count their own life as nothing, but gladly gives it for love's sake. Sometimes when we read the word meek, we automatically think of the word weak. And today I think we're going to differentiate that just a little bit. Here's the Greek word for meek. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but you can see how pretty it is up there. The word meek in a lot of, tr- a lot of other translations gets translated as this. Humble, mild, patient, long-suffering, poor, weak, or submissive. These are versions of uh, the word meek, and you may find them in some of your translations this morning. However, this morning I want to introduce a new idea to you. I want to introduce to you that I think the idea of this passage means the broken in. As I studied this Greek word, I kept coming in to its other use, which compared it to horses. The idea that you break a horse. If you are my friend on Facebook, you've probably seen that Naomi... Uh, has started riding horse. 
So Naomi's four, and that horse is a lot of hands. She looks really little on that horse. See, she somehow, a couple months ago, really caught the horse bug. And she constantly was asking, almost daily, Daddy, can we have a horse? Can we have a horse? Can we have a horse? And I kept saying, no, no, they're a lot of work. And so she spent a weekend at Grandma's, and Grandma told me, do you know what she asked me for? I was like, I can guess. Grandma, can I have a horse? As we started looking at houses, she would look in the backyard, and I'd say, do you like this house? Should we... Is this one you'd want to live in? And she'd say, not sure the yard's big enough for a horse. She loves horse. So we tried to kind of detour or filter some of that love, and we brought her some briar horses, and she was sitting around and playing with those. But she continued to want a horse and to talk about horses nonstop. She loved it. She doesn't have an idea of how much work they are. I tried to explain it to her. Because you can see in this next picture, I also love horses. I'm 18 in that picture. I'm wearing a shirt that says, this is what 40 looks like. Because I'm riding with two broken ribs and two bruised floating ribs. And that's my boss Sherwood behind me. We are riding through the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon. See, I worked at Sight and Sound, and I started there when I was 17. And I worked with training the animals and working with the animals there And eventually I became an animal trainer, and we would go away on weekends in the fall up to the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon, and we would ride for three days on horseback. And that's what you see is happening in that picture. See, Naomi didn't understand how much work went into a big animal like a horse, but I did. I knew what it took to train those and to care for them. So that's why we started giving her horse lessons, so that she can learn to care for a horse. She is not just riding, but she's learning to brush them and to to care for some of their needs. That's what I was hoping to teach her, so that she realizes how much work goes into it. I had a lot of work, a lot of things I had to shovel when I worked at Sight and Sound. In this next picture, you see me riding a camel. I share this picture because in this picture, I am breaking the camel. This is only the second time he was ridden. He threw me off a few seconds later. Breaking is a term in which we use to teach an animal with a huge independence of its own to work with us. In the past, some people have trained animals to be submissive. They've, uh, even some old, older Amish will tie the legs together of a horse and they call it beating the demon out of it. Some old, early trainers uh, like... Um, Oh, I'm forgetting his name now. Really believed that you had to just overload horses' senses uh, to train them to be submissive. Over the years, there's been a new introduction to that idea called horse whispering and natural horsemanship. But either way, the end result is the same. That independent animal that is so wild and so independent and so crazy learns to work with an outside force, an outside source. It learns to develop a rhythm with its rider, with its trainer, and it learns to take that outside source and make it an inside source as well. This morning when we explore Matthew 5, 5, I want you to think and remember and reflect on the idea of breaking in a horse or a camel. If you don't understand that, we can also think about it as a baseball glove. 
First time you get a new baseball glove or a softball glove, it's stiff, it's hard leather. You got to put the right amount of oil in it. You got to get your fist and you got to keep punching it in there. You got to get a baseball and you got to keep throwing it into the web to break it in. If you go into a field with a new uh, glove, it's going to be too stiff. You're not really going to be able to move it. You're just going to look like you have no idea how to play the game. You have to break something in. Two outside, the outside source and the inside source have to become one. That is the idea that I think Matthew 5, 5 is talking about. So let's say it this way. The meek and those that are self-aware, the meek are those that are self-aware that they are both surrendered and broken. Eventually with an animal, you get to a place that they trust you, that they, they want to work with you. And we even had a horse at Sight and Sound that I could sit on and not even signal. I could just think I want to go right. And something in my body must have triggered or uh, left some type of muscle twitch, and she would know I'd want to go right. I didn't even need to use my hands. Eventually, it just becomes natural. That horse and I had worked in rhythm together. That horse had surrendered its identity and its desire to be independent so that it could work. It was permanently broken. We need to learn the value of being permanently broken and surrendered. Once you break a horse, or once you learn to ride a bike, you know how to do those things forever. Once a horse is broken, it lets a rider with it forever. It's permanently learned the value of working with an outside source. It permanently understands the value of being surrendered and broken to self. We need to learn what it means to be broken to self. We need to value what it means to be broken. When we lose somebody or when we deal with a painful situation or life is going the way we want it to go, we need to be okay with that. We need to be able to sit in that area of brokenness and value it and realize that it's in those moments the kingdom can be felt and experienced. Why in life do we value so much by being valued by others and respected as being people who are accomplished What really is it that drives us to have stuff, to accomplish things, and to be of a value to others? Is it a spiritual drive, or is it one that mirrors others in the world? What drives us? What what do we value? When the kingdom breaks through and we learn to be citizens of the kingdom, we need to learn that we need to value not accomplishing it, not holding life in a checkmate. Like Jesus, we should demonstrate the ethos of the kingdom and the abundant love of God to the broken. At the end of the day, and with the Spirit's guiding, we need to mirror Jesus and realize that the kingdom didn't come for those that were put together. We spend so much time trying to be put together, and those aren't the people that really experience the kingdom. We spend so much time trying to get broken people who visit our churches or live in our neighborhoods to be a certain way and to reach certain things and help them hit certain steps because that's what we need to do. They need to achieve this. They need to accomplish here. They need to be like us or we need to be like them. And we miss the moment in which the kingdom wants to break through. The message we announce and live should invite the broken and the surrendered to receive and experience the kingdom. How we live our life is a message. Jesus started his message by demonstrating the kingdom and then announcing it. The messages we announce and live should invite the broken and surrender to receive the experience of the kingdom. In other words, what story does your life tell? 
Are you saying that you have to have it all together? Are you saying you have to accomplish this? Are you saying you have to live the American dream? Do you have to be this or be like this? Well, how we live our life and the things we want to live out becomes contagious to others. Jesus got followed up a mountainside because he didn't teach that. He loved on people where they were at. And he left them in their brokenness to figure out who he was in that moment. We spend so much time convincing ourselves and others and God that we are perfect, reserved together, accomplished, and strong. We spend so much time convincing ourselves and others and God that we are accomplished and strong, we're reserved, we're together, and we're figuring out what it means to be perfect. Yet nowhere in the scriptures do we find that those are the people who will see the face of God Those aren't the people that will inherit the earth. Those aren't the people that will experience the kingdom. Time after time, those who mess up big and can face they mess up big are actually those who see God. Luke 5, 31 to 32 reminds us what it truly means to be meek. Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. The kingdom needs a lot more sick people than it needs healthy people. The kingdom needs more people who are okay with being broken in, who are okay with being meek, who are okay with learning to experience an outside source in moments of self-defeat. The kingdom needs more people who value surrendering who they are and what they are so that they can learn to be broken in for the sake of God and his kingdom. It is there that they will find the face of God and true accomplishment. Invite the worship team to come back forward. As we worship together in closing, they are going to be leading us through the song, I Surrender All. It's a song that we all know very well. The song we can probably sing without the words on the screen. But do we really know what it means to surrender all? For when I broke that camel, that camel who could travel at 35 miles per hour, who could crush my head with its jaw, had to learn to work with me. It had to learn the power of surrender of self. Do we know what it means to give up everything, to surrender who we are and what we want to accomplish so that the chessboard can be turned upside down? And we can be held in checkmate and be okay with that. That's what I ask you to think about as we sing this song.